You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 91. This week, a big thank you goes out to Ronald for his generous donation, and to Fred, Hank, and Kevin for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes. You too can get access to these episodes over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. Also, if you head over there right now, there is a post where I'm soliciting questions for a special episode 100 question extravaganza. So head on over and get a sneak peek at those questions and add your own. Last episode, we talked about the British plan for the coming attack, and a big piece of that plan revolved around the guns. Now, I'm not referring to wimpy rifles or tiny pistols or even machine guns. I mean the real guns that ruled the First World War battlefield, the artillery. That's pretty much all we're going to talk about today. The Battle of the Somme was preceded by a full week of artillery fire, constantly raining down shells on the German lines. What were they hoping to do with this fire? How were they planning to do it? These are the type of questions that we will answer over the next several minutes, before we dive into how the bombardment actually went after it got going. For both the British and the Germans, the last week of June would be a very long one, although for different reasons. And the results of this week are critical to understand before we look into what happened when the infantry went forward on July the 1st. We start with the numbers. The British and French would have under their command a total of just about 3,000 guns. This meant that for the British, they had a gun for every 20 yards of front, and a heavy howitzer for every 58 yards. Second Lieutenant Cleave of the Royal Garrison Artillery would speak about how the British got to some of these numbers, how they built up this number of guns. Quote, They were improvised howitzers because they were old 6-inch Mark 1s, cut in half, and the front half was thrown away. The rest was bored out to 8-inch with rifling, and they were given modern breech mechanisms. They were mounted on enormous commercial tractor wheels, and they, as they were the only thing available. They were monstrous things and extremely heavy, but the machinery of the guns was very simple, and that's why they did so extremely well, and didn't give nearly as much trouble as some of the more complicated guns that came to appear later on. One was the very first one to be made, and it was marked 8-inch howitzer Mark I, number 1. So we called that gun the original, 
and it was marvelously accurate, end quote. I think this quote, uh, I actually quite like it, because it shows how held together by duct tape and bailing wire the British Army was at this point. Sure, they had a lot of shells, but they were bringing forward almost three million of them, and they had to find something to shoot, shoot them with. Even if they were going to, you know, have to reuse guns and change them all up and everything. Although, although it is really cool, it shows great ingenuity that they took those 6-inch Mark 1s and turned them into 8-inch howitzers, and they actually ended up pretty good. The men manning the artillery were very green. For example, a good portion of the artillery of the 34th Division had a grand total of three days of practice with their guns in England before heading to France, where they did not have much more time than that before the coming attack. This lack of training and supply difficulties, which we will discuss near the end of this episode, would cause serious problems that would not be readily apparent until after the fact. One more bit, and this probably kills all the hype for what I'm about to talk about a bit, but the artillery on the Somme, while huge in comparison to 1914, was minuscule when compared to the largest bombardments later in the war. Later battles would see the same number of shells that were fired in a week on the Somme fired in a few days, two days even. That's just something to keep in mind when we consider the results of the bombardment. Sure, it was bigger than anything before, but it readily became apparent that it was not yet big enough. The initial plan was for the artillery to fire for several days, five days initially, and they were planning to use a good portion of those three million shells during this effort. The field guns had taken up positions a thousand yards behind the front, and the heavy guns were dispersed behind. The plan was for the light guns to focus on cutting the wire. A thousand guns in total were dedicated to this task, and one million out of the planned 1.6 million shells for their preparation bombardment were at their disposal. Even with this amount of focus, some of the commanders at the front were concerned that it would not be enough. Cutting the wire was absolutely critical, and in reality, as they would soon learn, nothing else really mattered. While the field guns were focusing on the wire, the larger guns would focus on hitting the trenches, strong points, and counter-battery fire. They had a hell of a job in front of them when it came to trenches and strong points, because there was something like 150,000 yards of German defenses that they had to try and deal with. The final job for the artillery was counter-battery fire. They outnumbered the German guns massively, but counter-battery fire was still critical. The problem was, and the reason I left this task to discuss last, was because many of the commanders also just used whatever they had left over for counter-battery fire. The problem was that only the heaviest of the guns and the howitzers had the range necessary to hit the German gun lines, and unfortunately, these very same guns were also the best at all of the other jobs that the artillery had to do. Because of this, many commanders were forced to make a choice, and on the northern end of the attack, many of them chose to greatly de-emphasize counter-battery fire in favor of using those shells and guns for other purposes. On the southern end and on the French area of the front, counter-battery fire was given more priority. And in case you're wondering why I put so much emphasis on this aspect, yes, we'll be coming back to this topic soon, probably next episode. While the planning for the five-day bombardment was an involved process, It paled in comparison to trying to plan for what would happen after the artillery fire had prepared the trenches and the infantry went forward. Bombarding static positions was nothing more than pointing your gun at a thing and then dropping enough shells on it until that thing was destroyed. 
However, once the infantry went forward, everything changed. Throughout the entire planning process for the artillery and for the attack in general, a ton of thought was given to how to make the artillery as useful as possible for the infantry. The general direction from Rawlinson, as he said in his tactical notes to his commanders, was that, quote, the ideal is for the artillery to keep their fire immediately in front of the infantry, as the latter advances battering down all opposition with a hurricane of projectiles, end quote. This would be achieved by a series of carefully planned and coordinated lifts, as the artillery slowly extended its range to stay ahead of the attack. All of this was practiced and planned behind the lines. However, when it came time for exact planning, it would be left up to the divisional and corps commanders. They were given freedom to choose what the artillery would focus on, how quickly it moved forward, and what precisely it was bombarding at what precise time. A good portion of the reasoning for this seems to be because each area of the front had different considerations and different situations, and this is a sound thought. But what it really did was it ended up making each area of the front different, sometimes in a good way and sometimes, and more often, in a bad. In many areas, it meant that the fire would lift as soon as the attack started, and not a nice small lift to the next set of German positions, but all the way into the next entire set of lines hundreds if not thousands of yards behind the first objective. Now if everything went perfectly, this was exactly the right move, because it would have prepared the next set of lines for the arrival of British troops, but they had to get there, which is where it all fell apart. There was a smokescreen planned, and that could have made up for this larger lift, but it had to be cancelled right before the attack due to inclement weather. These problems were not known during the planning, and they, there were huge expectations put on the bombardment that in reality it had no chance of fulfilling. One British officer would tell his men that, quote, You'll be able to go over the top with a walking stick. You will not need rifles. And when you go into Thiepville Village, you will find the Germans all dead. Not a rat will have survived. End quote. Now, some of that quote can be chalked up to frontline propaganda. I mean, no officer is going to tell his men before an attack that the artillery support is going to be worthless. But this optimism went from the lowest officer right up to Haig. They all expected good things. The results would be disappointing. The barrage would begin on June the 24th at 5 a.m., Midsummer's Day, or at least one source told me that. Nobody else mentioned it, but it does have a nice ring to it, so I've chosen not to fact-check that bit. All along the front, guns began to fire, and here is John Keegan from his book The First World War to discuss it. Quote, At 5 a.m., a storm of artillery broke with a crash all along the entire line. As far as the eye could see, clouds of shrapnel filled the sky, like dust blown on the wind. The bursts were constantly renewed, and toil as it might, the morning breeze could not sweep the sky clear. All around there was howling, snarling, and hissing. With a sharp ringing sound, the death-dealing shells burst, spewing their leaden fragments against our line. The balls felt like hail on the roofs of half-destroyed villages, whistled through the branches of the still green trees, and beat down hard on the parched earth, whipping up small clouds of smoke and dust from the earth. Large caliber shells droned through the air like giant bumblebees, crashing, smashing, and boring down into the earth. End quote. 
With all of the firing happening, it was not long until some guns started to break down, or to have some issues, as machines always do. Here is Lieutenant William Bloor of the Royal Field Artillery, as he describes what happened to his commander, Major Dodd, during one of these mechanical mishaps. Quote, At about 5 p.m., we had two premature bursts. The first killed two of our infantry, and the second hit Dodd himself in the back. He was carried off to the dressing station, and the major went on by himself. After we had finished firing, I went up to the trenches and saw Dodd. He had a shrapnel bullet through the kidneys, and he's for Blighty at once. These prematures are the very devil, but cannot be avoided. The barrel of the gun gets very hot with continuous firing, and this affects the charge of cordite, and the shell sometimes bursts too soon. But it is a thousand pities and an extraordinary mischance that we ourselves should have shot an officers of ours. End quote. The initial plan, as I mentioned, was for the bombardment to last only five days, so this would have made it end on June the 29th. However, on the 26th, it clouded over and began to rain. This had a few very important effects. First of all, it made the bombardment less productive, because it slowed everything down due to transportation difficulties. It also meant that the Royal Flying Corps could not properly spot and adjust the British fire. They also could not report back estimates of the effectiveness of the fire and try to adjust things. Because of the weather, the bombardment had to be extended by 48 hours, pushing the start of the attack back to July the 1st. This meant that the guns had to continue to fire, and the infantry had to continue to wait for another two days. Captain Charles Manson of the Manchester Regiment, 91st Brigade, 7th Division, would say that, quote, We were already and anxious to get away, to get up and moving and done with the waiting. Waiting is rotten. I think it tries the nerves more than the actual moment of assault. End quote. So one of the huge advantages of having the massive amount of really detailed sources that I have access to for the sum is that it is very easy for me to get a great set of first-hand accounts. This is not always possible for me, simply because I don't have the research time available, stupid real jobs, and stuff like that. However, with so many books just sort of overflowing off of my Amazon wish list, I'm able to get a good list of first-hand accounts, and for a few times through these Psalm episodes, I'm just going to go through a bunch of the really good quotes from the various men who are at the front, and this just so happens to be the first of these opportunities. The artillery bombardment occupies a large piece in the British accounts of the battle. For the artillery, it was because this was their moment to shine and their most important time in the battle. And for the infantry, well, they were just sort of hanging around and waiting. 
This gave both of these groups an incentive to write about their experiences, one out of boredom and one out of importance. For the artillery, they felt like they were finally getting down to business. Here is Lieutenant Kenneth Page of the Royal Field Artillery. Quote, I was in charge of a section of 18-pounders battery, and we were given the job of cutting lanes through the German wire. It wasn't an easy thing to do. You had to do it very slowly and very deliberately. The experts, the 18-pound battery commanders, were quite good at cutting wire, but it did need very careful laying, because guns were rather inaccurate things in those days, and it wasn't easy to go plugging one gun into the same hole every time, however accurately you laid it. With the inaccuracies of ammunition and fuses, and even the guns themselves, you would get unavoidable errors. End quote. In the line, the first feeling that most men had was simply awe. As Private Albert Atkins of the 56th Division explains, while explaining sort of what it would be like to be hit by this artillery. Quote, Imagine yourself, standing in a trench with water well over your knees, crouching against the side of a muddy trench, while thousands of unseen shells come shrieking and winding overhead, most of them dropping with a crash on the parapet, followed by a terrific explosion which temporarily blinds, deafens, and strikes one dumb. Even if you are lucky enough to miss being hit by one of the thousands of pieces of red-hot shrapnel, the concussion is sufficient to knock you over. Imagine yourself being slowly buried by the displaced earth which falls down on you like rain and half-drowned by the water in the trench, and while in this predicament, the shells continue to rush over. However, as the bombardment continued, the first feelings of boredom seemed to have started to set in as Private Ralph Miller of the 48th Division describes. Quote, We got so fed up, to the point that we thought the quicker the bloody whistles go for us to go over, the better. We always said to one another, Well, it's a two-to-one chance that we either get bowled over or get wounded and go home. One of the two, that's all we used to bother. We got so browned off with the waiting, the weather, you can't really explain what it was like doing your bit and hoping for the best, end quote. As the waiting continued, other feelings began to creep in. The weight of what was about to happen, as a signaler for the artillery describes when talking about the infantry surrounding him in the front line, quote, Some were writing letters, perhaps their last home. Others were conversing in subdued tones. Some were making a brave attempt at ribaldry. The anxiety though brave attempts were made to hide it, was clearly discernible on the faces of those seated in silent contemplation of tomorrow, and the pathos of it all overwhelmed me, and I found it hard to disguise my emotions. End quote. Some men tried to keep spirits up, both for themselves and for the men around them, as Private James Tainsley of the 23rd Division did. Quote, we knew that while a lot of us would be casualties on the morrow, we knew what was going to happen, and it was interesting to see the different responses of the different soldiers. One man would go away on his own, communicate with himself somewhere, and he seemed rather moody. I tried to cheer him up. Others, again, they put on a form of jollification. When the march started up, up towards the line, it was all happy and a long way to Tipperary, biscuit tins being hammered, and all jollification like that to keep up the spirits. Many men took the time to ride home, 
to talk about what they were going to do when the attacks started and how they were going to play their part. This is Lieutenant Jack Engel, who was doing so to his parents. Quote, My dearest mother and father, I'm writing this letter the day before the most important moment of my life, a moment which I must admit I've never prayed for, like thousands of others have, but nonetheless a moment which now it has come I will not back out of for all the money in the world. The day has almost dawned when I shall really do my bit for the cause of civilization. Tomorrow morning I shall take my men, men who I have got to love, and who I think have got to love me, over the top to do our bit, in which the London Territorials have taken part as a whole unit. End quote. Lieutenant Ingle would be killed in action on July the 1st. For others, well, here's Charles May of the 7th Division. Quote, The thought that we may be cut off from one another, which is so terrible, and that our babe may grow up without my knowing her, and without her knowing me, it is difficult to face. And I know your life without me would be a dull blank, yet you must never let it be wholly so. For to you will be left the greatest charge in all the world, the upbringing of our baby. God bless that child, she is the hope of life to me. It may well be that you will only have to read these lines as one of passing interest. On the other hand, they will may be the last message I send to you. If they are, know that through all your life that I loved you, and b- the baby with all my heart and soul, that you two sweet things were just all the world to me. I pray to God I may do my duty, for I know whatever that may entail, you would not have it otherwise. End quote. Unfortunately, Charles May would be killed on the 1st of July. For the Germans, on the receiving end of the bombardment, their accounts are different. This is from Lieutenant Castle of the 26th Reserve Division. Quote, We were tired and slept as much as one could. The noise of the bombardment was too monotonous, and so prevented sleep for overtired people. There was only one harassing question. Could one rely on the sentries? They stood on the top of the steps of the dugout and had to watch lest the fire was changed to the rear and had to look in quieter moments across the ramparts whether the enemy was coming across. Day long, night long, and not all men are heroes. So from time to time one had to go up to see whether the sentries did their duty. After five or six days, it seemed like becoming a permanent state of affairs. Won't the scoundrels ever come to an, to the end of this terrible game of waiting? No, they do not. End quote. And here is Hopsman Hansel. Quote, After we had taken over the positions, the bombardment increased day by day and hour by hour, until gentle harassing fire had been transformed into drum fire. The Ninth Company held the center of the line, about a hundred meters from the French. The position compromised the battle trench with an accommodation trench which contained most of the dugouts just to the rear. We occupied four large mine craters just to our front. Morale was excellent. Everyone knew that hard days lay ahead, knew that each would do his duty. The bombardment damaged the trenches to such an extent that clearance work was no longer feasible. End quote. Every day that the bombardment continued, the situation got worse and worse for the German troops. 
There was a constant need to use every available opportunity to bring up supplies and food. Lieutenant Gerster explained some of the reasons why. Quote, the actual frontline trench no longer existed. Instead, crater overlapped with crater where it had once been. Half-collapsed holes indicated where the dugouts, which still remained, were located. The staircases were buried beneath piles of earth, which had fallen down from above. As a result, the troops had to scramble up a smooth, steep slope, which offered almost no footholds, and able to climb up to the daylight. End quote. The situation percolated all, up to, all the way up to General Von Bülow, who wrote in his official report on February on June 28th that, quote, enemy activity opposite the 14th Reserve Corps and the 17th Army Corps resembles ever more closely tactics of wearing down and attrition. It must be assumed that the bombardment, which has now lasted for five days, and which from time to time increases to drum fire before reducing to calmer observed fire by the heaviest caliber weapons on different sectors of our positions, will continue for some time. The enemy's gas tactics, which are being aided by the prevailing west winds of releasing constantly repeated small clouds of gas, is aimed also at gradual attrition. End quote. The effects of the bombardment were not just physical either. It also began to affect the men mentally. A constant fear plays a big part in their accounts. Here's one German. Quote, Shall I live till morning? Haven't we had enough of this frightful horror? Five days and five nights now, this hell concert has lasted. One's head is like a madman's. The tongue sticks to the roof of the mouth. Almost nothing to eat and nothing to drink. No sleep. All contact with the outer world cut off. No sign of life from home, nor can we send any news to our loved ones. What anxiety they must feel about us. How long is it going to last? End quote. When these two problems, the physical and mental strain, combined, everything just got worse. Here's another German. Quote, Despite all efforts, the rations were inadequate. The uninterrupted high state of readiness, which had to be maintained because of the entire situation as well as the frequent gas attacks, hindered the troops from getting the sleep that they needed because of the nerve-shattering artillery fire. Tired and indifferent to everything, the troops sat it out on wooden benches or lay on the hard metal beds, staring into the darkness when the tallow lights were extinguished by the overpressure of the explosions. Nobody had washed for days. Black stubble stood out on the pale, haggard faces, whilst the eyes of some flashed strangely, as though they had looked beyond the portals of the other side. Some trembled when the sound of death roared around the underground protected places. Whose heart was not in his mouth at times during the appalling storm of steel? All longed for an end to it one way or the other. All were seized by a deep bitterness at the inhuman machine of destruction which hammered endlessly. A searing rage against the enemy burned in their minds. End quote. While the German soldiers were not having a good time, the question remains, were all of these shells doing any good? Well, first of all, there was a problem. Uh, the shells were not as reliable as had been hoped. Many of them completely failed to explode. The worst of these seemed to have been the lower caliber shrapnel shells, which were supposed to be the ones cutting the wire. The shells either did not explode at all, or they exploded too late, doing a lot of damage to the ground, but just sort of bouncing the wire around. 
That is not to say that the fire did not hurt the Germans or their positions, though, as we've just discussed, and their casualty numbers were around 7,000 during the week-long artillery bombardment. The mental situation of the survivors was also non-optimal. By the last day of June, there were unit reports with quotes like, All had just one hope, that the endless shelling finally stop and the enemy attack. Even in the, on the northern end of the front, where their bombardment was the least effective, the trenches were still heavily damaged. On the southern end, especially on the French front, the bombardment had a serious effect on the German defenders, both because of the better artillery preparation and because the terrain here was worse for the defenders. Another problem for the Germans was that when the firing started, most of their command centers behind the front were included in the firing zone, which caused confusion on the German side while they were repositioned. Unfortunately for the attackers, most of this had been sorted out before the week was over. The Germans did not know exactly when the bombardment would end, and this limited their ability to prepare for what would come after. Prisoners that had been taken before the bombardment started correctly reported that it was planned to last five days, but after it started it was difficult to capture more troops and gain more information. This made it impossible to know that it had been expanded for an additional two days. So after five days had come and gone, the Germans were very much in the dark as to what was happening. Overall though, even though the Germans were knocked around a bit, and perhaps a bit confused, almost all of the strongest German positions were mostly unharmed, most of the infantry shelters had survived. Most of the wire was intact. The line was very much still defensible and still very capable, as would be discovered very soon. On July the 1st, at 6.35 a.m., the guns, which had been constantly firing for a week, upped their speed to a crescendo. The Germans, sensing that this was the moment, fired red flares all along the line, and telephone lines to the rear exploded with calls for the German guns to open up. Now the British troops began to get a taste of their own medicine, as the German guns finally answered the British bombardment with everything it had. This hit the waiting troops particularly hard, because they were stuffed in the forward trenches, waiting to go forward. All along the lines, officers were staring at their watches, waiting for the time to come. It was time for the attack to begin. And that also means it's time for this episode to be over. I hope you'll join me next episode as we discuss the disaster and the triumph of July the 1st, 1916.